Okay, do you want to actually live longer, but look like and feel like a kick-ass rock star in the process? In order to do that, you're going to need some biohacks. You're going to need hormones. You're going to need a couple other things that we're going to talk about on today's podcast. With my guest, Dr. Rand McLean, who is just, he's so sneaky. I got to tell you, you're going to hear his knowledge, but I had no idea that he was a two-time U.S. Olympic water polo team member. He's a prostate cancer survivor. He's co-owner of El Forno Restaurant, kick-ass restaurant, hello. Avid cyclist, swimmer, triathlete. I mean, you you just have to see this guy. He's absolutely amazing. And his knowledge is through the roof. So we are going to deep dive today. We're going to talk about his book, Cheating Death. And we're going to also deep dive into the world of hormones a little bit deeper. You know, I love to get other people's take on the importance of hormones. So we're going to go there. We're going to dive into rapamycin. We're going to talk about peptide. We're going to talk about all those things that you need to be looking at and implementing if you really don't want to become just an old donut. If you want to be a kick-ass rock star, then you need to listen up. Are you finally at your wit's end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada. I have you covered. I've been building this team for years so that I could help you no matter where you are. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, book a free application call. We're going to go over your current health situation, what worked, what hasn't worked, all the things. And then we will pair you up with the right program for you where we will do it all. You will come out the other side of the program, totally optimized, getting your life back. You're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. Dr. Rand McLean, thank you so much for coming on. And I know you and I have been working together. We've been talking through a whole bunch of fun stuff from hormones to peptides to anti-aging, but now it's time to bring it to my audience so that they can learn from your ingenious mind. You've been doing this for a long time. So I'm so excited to have your knowledge on my show. So thank you. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for such a great intro. Very complimentary. Uh, Thank you for that. Not sure if even a fraction of that is is worthy of me, but again, thank you. But I'd I'd love to share with you whatever I've learned so far. You know, some of these anti-aging tools we were talking about earlier. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of science that we can gather because it involves uh, some generations. And and I've only been around for 60 years, but we're doing the best we can, right? Well, and you don't look it. So for those listening (laughs) and not watching, my God, I mean, this is the perfect example of a man who takes care of himself, who does not look his age. And we're going to kind of talk about what are those secrets to not looking your age? I'm huge into anti-aging, both for aesthetics and for longevity. And your book, Cheating Death, obviously you touch on that because it's not just about living longer in some nursing home. It's about living your best life as a 
huge badass feeling amazing. Yeah. I have yet to meet anyone ever. And it's rare you can say that in medicine or just in life where, you know, it's never or always, but never met anybody who said, like to trade quality for quantity. You know, never heard that. Actually, people sit in my office regularly and say, hey, doc, listen, let me shoot straight with you. If you can give me another five years of quality life, I'll, I'll take 10 off the back end. You know, that, that's an easy trade for me. And the beauty of this, I say it all the time, is that you don't have to make that trade and, and you don't have to necessarily trust in me. You just trust in your own natural, we call it common sense. If we're making your life better by preventing or reversing uh, type 2 diabetes or coronary artery disease, don't you think that not only you'll live better, but probably live longer because those morbidities tend to cut your life short anyway? So it's not a Robin Peter to pay Paul scenario. It's it's a win-win. Right. First of all, actually, before we go into the secrets, I have never heard your story of how you came into this world of anti-aging medicine, because as we know, and many of my listeners know, going through that conventional medicine system, you're taught if this, then this, give this pill, call it a day. People are in and out in five to seven minutes, check the box. What made you do that shift from conventional medicine and really open your mind and open your practice up to unconventional treatments, basically functional medicine? Well, I always say it was more desperation than inspiration because of my own issues. I got into medicine late. Uh, I started the whole process when I was about 37 years old. I was a CPA for the longest time. And I tell people medicine was my, my ninth career. I got into Chinese medicine first, partly out of that desperation and frustration with what you call, you know, the, the way you describe it. I call, I call it paint by numbers medicine, you know, where you're just ticking boxes and you can do it through an algorithm that somebody at uh, really the insurance company has helped develop because it's financially based rather than just medically based. So that's how I got started. I just said, you know, what, what works what, what do I need to do? And then I thought, well, if I'm doing this for myself, I've done the research, the deep dives, as we call it, and I've sought out the best practitioners of this sort of treatment. Why wouldn't I want to implement that in my own program to, to share with other people? It's just kind of easy to, to, to see how that followed. But, you know, it does take some work and some faith. And that's part of the reason why I wrote the book, because, you know, these days you go on the Internet and you can dig up stuff. You could prove any case that you want to prove. You'll find a study somewhere that says what you want. And the problem is there are so many poorly done studies that you can do that. And um, it, it just it, it makes it so difficult to trust what's out there. So you go back to the, the standard, what you were referring to earlier, the, the, you know, the five to seven, I call it three to five minute visit where they just say, okay, here are the pills we have for that. And, uh, you know, thank you. See you later. Bye. Right. Because you have 20 other people that you need to see in the next hour. I have actually had that said to my face. Actually, the, the, they said 30. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had more questions and I was told, you know, sorry, time's up. I've got 30 more patients after you. Yep. Yep. It's unfortunate, but that is the case. But that is also why you do what you do. I do what I do. We want to help people and give them time and actually listen to them and listen to their problems and and piece that puzzle together. And in order to piece that puzzle together, you need time with the patient. And again, you know, we can definitely lay blame on the system, the doctor, but part of my point I was trying to make, not very well, I think, but, you know, the patient 
if they're involved and they can push this forward too, they're going to stop and say, no, that doesn't work for me. Five to seven minutes is not enough. I've done the research or I am aware because you know I read a book, I read a peer-reviewed study that actually makes sense, somebody I trust, we know is trustworthy, et cetera. I want an answer regarding this. Tell me why it doesn't work. And, and you know, we were talking earlier, I'm not talking about Dr. Google type stuff, stuff you might read in with all due deference, you know, Time Magazine article, okay, where a reporter, not another physician has reviewed it, the peer review process. I'm talking about real science. And anyway, this is the idea, part of the reason for the book and, and what you and I both do, which is to disseminate the information so that the other side of the equation, one that we wouldn't necessarily lay blame on, can take some responsibility, you know, be your own best advocate as a patient. Mm -hmm. Yep. A hundred percent. I'm always teaching people that to be your best patient advocate and stand up for yourself. A hundred percent. So as we're moving into the anti-aging talk, of course, we have to start with hormones because hormones are the key to life and a very, very interesting story to kind of lead into this. My husband and I were out and he was looking around. He's like, you know, all these people, they're like kind of around our age, right? Everybody's like old. They all look like donuts. Like they're all just out of shape and old. I go, because we take hormones. <laughs> hormones are the key to life. And that alone helps us to not age like the typical American. So let's start off with the importance of hormones across the board, both sexes. And then I do want to get into my passion, your passion, testosterone, and its importance in anti-aging. Well, hormones, as you say, are very important. And uh, without them, we tend to not function as well. It's a horrible analogy, but one that most people understand. It's like you're going to have the best, uh, you're going to have a 12 cylinder race engine. Uh, with the best petrol, you know, 97 octane. But if you don't have the oil in the car, it's not going to, the combustion is not going to work out right. Put it that way. And the same thing with hormones. You know, you can do everything else right, but if you don't have the leverage of testosterone, for example, for muscle mass, for energy, uh, for that sense of well-being, then yeah, you're, you're going to not only look older, but you're going to be older. You're going to function not as well, just like a car without oil. And it's a matter of, certainty now, not conjecture anymore. We know that, I believe it's still defined uh, as age 35, you're going to experience either perimenopause for a female or paraandropause for a male. So this one's a no-brainer. At some point, depends upon the individual, not the, you know, I always talk about that mythical average human being. 35 might be the number for a lot of people, but it might be 30 especially for people under stress, it might be 45 for people that aren't under stress or chose their parents differently than you and I. Right. So that's not important, the, the, the age at which it occurs, but the fact that it's going to occur if you live long enough is important to know. So it is essential that you address the hormones at some point you're going to need to. So the, the sooner the better, and I mean that, you know, if you can get a bead on what is normal for you, even when you're healthy, it's always nice to have so that you can rule it in or out if something's going on and you say, oh, but my hormones are the same uh, as before. Maybe it's something else. Or now, my, look, my hormones have taken a precipitous fall. It makes it even more obvious. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hormones are, and we're not just talking about testosterone. Regulating hormones, whether it's excess estrogen for guys mm -hmm. is important or not enough for, for gals. Uh, so it's not just all about testosterone, although 
I would argue, uh, I always joke about, uh, and I give my age away, you know, the, the old Saturday Night Live commercial for Shimmer. It's a floor wax. No, it's a dessert topping. You know, a lot of people, when they hear me, are probably thinking, Jesus, what, do you think testosterone does everything in the world? No, but it does a heck of a lot. And it can be a, a game changer, as you and your husband know, and a lot of people that have, you know, done the research and, and gotten on the program, so to speak. Right, exactly. No, it, it definitely, uh, we need to mention estradiol and progesterone. You and I had talked earlier this week about the benefits of progesterone for men and when you use it as well. So all hormones are beneficial. I like to focus on testosterone because I think it's the one that gets the bad rap in both males and females. And because as you know, so many people tie it back to bodybuilding and I came from that world. And did I see the abuse? Absolutely. In both sexes? Yes, hundred percent. But when it's used properly and when it's used as an anti-aging treatment to actually address low testosterone in males and females, it can have a host of benefits outside of the aesthetics, outside of the muscle gain and the fat loss. So I really want to kind of get into, I talked about this at my talk at KetoCon, just all of the different things that can benefit, all the different systems and organs and disease states and conditions that can benefit from getting your testosterone to an optimal level. Well, again, I, I think it's definitely the hormone where there's more bang for the buck, so to speak, uh, once you get into replacing it. Yes, not just using it for aesthetics. Although you mentioned muscle mass, I mean, there's the uh, aesthetic part of that, certainly. But we use, you know, muscle mass, I argue, is synonymous with metabolism, if you think about it. You know, why why do you have to eat so much food? It's, it's not uh, for your brain. I think your brain could probably survive on... Uh, well, more than half a pack of Lifesavers, but not not too much. I, I'm sure you've you've never had somebody ring you up and say, boy, Amy, you should have showed up today. We went to the library and burned 3,000 calories studying Einstein for four hours. They've actually done studies showing that if you studied really, really hard in the library all day, you might increase your, your caloric output by maybe, maybe 300 calories. So that's not the answer. It's always something they're, they're, they're telling you about the missed workout you have that involved moving your muscles, right? So it's not just about aesthetics. And I've seen reversal of type 2 diabetes, insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes, just by putting muscle back on your frame. We call it a sugar sink. You know, it's a place where it's clamoring your muscle is for, for glycogen to be refilled once you've worked out. And even if you are not working out, if you're carrying more muscle, you're literally burning more calories when you're sleeping. But when you're doing your average day-to-day stuff, going to the grocery store, you know, uh, walking the dogs, whatever it might be, you're burning more calories because you're carrying that metabolic liability, the muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a game changer. And I can go on and on about, you know, exercise being the great equalizer. But one thing that you mentioned earlier about the stigma attached to testosterone, I think a large part of that is we confuse anabolic steroids with steroids. Right. First of all, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, they're all steroids, meaning made from cholesterol. Stop me if your audience already knows all this stuff. Anabolic steroids are not naturally occurring substances. They are steroids that have been adjusted so that they make for more muscle mass. They're anabolic, and uh, they still do a lot of the same things that testosterone would do. So I think a lot of the stigma comes from the abuse of anabolic steroids more so than the, the naturally occurring testosterone, although people can abuse that too. It's just a lot harder to do so because 
it, it, it's, it's hard to find negatives that come with testosterone use, certainly when compared to anabolic steroids. Now, the other part of this is testosterone gets a bad rap because of what testosterone could be converted into. Dihydrotestosterone, one of the metabolites, is what earns testosterone the bad rap. It's much more potent in terms of what we call the androgenic side effects, the things we don't want, like whether it's a guy or a girl, you know, the extra hair on the chin or in the ears, you know, or shoulders or wherever it is. And we forget men and women have hair in the same places. Women just tend to have a lot less of it, right? So right. it's going to accelerate that growth. And, and it comes with testosterone replacement if you don't uh, govern the, the conversion. So I'll stop there. I just, you know, a few things to clarify because, yeah, it, you know, I wonder, and I don't think we'll ever know the reason why it's gotten such a bad rap over all these years. It's an essential hormone and it does wonders when done properly. When done properly, exactly. And are you also seeing the, and I know there's literature on this as well, the tie into protection of the cardiovascular system and even you know, neuroprotection, cognition, memory improvement, bone, hair. Are you seeing all of that as well in your practice? Yeah, we've, we've known there's a link between low testosterone and things like coronary artery disease, which I think you just mentioned, mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes, which I mentioned earlier, colon cancer, prostate cancer. When we're talking about guys, right, that used to be linked. Oh, boy, if you take testosterone, you're going to get prostate cancer as a given. Right. Now we actually have, albeit small studies, showing that use of testosterone can be not only protective, and there are larger studies to prove that, but used as a treatment for prostate cancer. They call it bipolar therapy, where they'll give you some testosterone treatment and they'll pull it away, give it to you. And they've had great success. Uh, I say great. I think the, the end was maybe 15 patients, but and it might have improved. They, they might have duplicated the, the study at a, at a bigger scale by now. But anyway, testosterone shortage of it, uh, the one thing I forgot to add was osteoporosis, which affects uh, men and women. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and the thing is, again, we've known this for a long time and, you know, the neurocognitive uh, benefit um, is coming to bear more. I argue it's, it's more than anything. It's having more energy. It's, you know, when you're above, say, 80 or 90, then you can expect to have, and I'm dating myself again, some issues perhaps with the filament, and the light bulb. I don't know if they still have filaments and light bulbs anymore, but, but before that, it's usually a lack of flow to the light bulb. The energy is not there. And you go, oh, God, I got this brain fog. And then you get your energy back and you go, no, I don't have brain fog. You know, there's nothing wrong with my brain per se. I, just, I didn't have any energy to think. I was exhausted. Yep, exactly. And even just mood too. So tying back into what you mentioned about the brain, mood, that whole grumpy old man syndrome, right? We, we say that jokingly, but men are getting older and they're getting grumpy because their testosterone drops. And that starts to affect energy and cognition and focus and mood. And so you become more depressed and lethargic and you just stop giving a shit basically on a day-to-day -day basis and you become grumpy. And and just to be uh, fair about it, so to speak, you know, and, and to make the point, it's not just about guys. Women right. get grumpy too. Women are absolutely dependent upon testosterone is my point. Yes. And that's something that's finally coming into view. And you would think it would have been there, particularly for physicians who know that the physiology is the same in the sense that testosterone and estrogen are both present in males and females, just different ratios, but the testosterone has the same effect on a female as a male. And yeah, without it, you can be grumpy and, and depressed. 
Testosterone is nature's antidepressant. They had a great study back in the 1950s, I believe, where they treated uh, recalcitrant depression with testosterone. And the cool thing about the study back then was, this is where I'd shake my head and go, okay, what went wrong? Why didn't this carry forward to today? Why was this a long break with this stigma we were talking about? Uh, the study used women, not men, oh, with wow. recalcitrant depression. And I think, uh, and I'll be conservative since, you know, presumably I am because I used to be a CPA, but I think there was like an, at least an 85% resolution of symptoms using testosterone in women of, now the important thing was their age. And this is part and parcel of what happens. We, um, you know, we have something called the, the, the Bible of psychiatry, the DSM-5, right? Mm -hmm. We know that if depression is in your genes, so to speak, if you're destined to get it or you have a proclivity for it, it's going to occur in your late teens or early 20s. Well, when do most people have issues in this country? This has been studied. You know, we have the, the, the amount of SSRIs or, or, or SNRIs that are prescribed usually happens somewhere in midlife. Right. Not at 17, 18, 19 years old. Why is that? Well, things happen, right? That could be when you're, unfortunately, you know, your parents die or uh, you, you get divorced or you change jobs or whatever the heck it is. Mm -hmm. legitimate reasons to be depressed better living through science we get on an ssri for six months or 12 months and then you should be able to get off it but people are on it for 10 20 years and the joke is well what you had a prozac deficiency no you have about that same age though a drop in testosterone nature's own antidepressant and i think that's where the link is because again even by our own standards in psychiatry it makes no sense that you have all these people coming down with you know lifetime depression at 35, 40 years old. Right. Right. Exactly. Oh, I love that. I love that. I could talk about testosterone all day long. I really could, but I do want to, I want to jet off into different topics too, and just really pick your brain. One thing that you said earlier, and I kind of want to go down that rabbit hole slightly is about anabolic steroids. Now, what fascinates me, especially coming from the background that I come from is that you now will use oxandrolone, i.e. Anavar, in your practice for a variety of different reasons. And that's what I want to talk about too. I, I find it fascinating because obviously that is a drug that we'll call it the girly steroid, right? So back when I was competing, the girls took the Anavar because they didn't want to get the androgenic side effects. Now, obviously, if you take too much, you can still get the acne, you can still get some some androgenic side effects from it, but it was kind of the girly steroid because it wouldn't make you huge, big and bulky, but you would get the leanness and you would get the muscle retention and you would get the strength without growing a beard or a clatinus. So can you talk to me about how did oxandrolone come back into normal practice in practices like yours where you do think outside the box? I've heard Peter Atia talk about it. Obviously you guys are using it. So Let's go down that rabbit hole slightly. Well, and, and we're not alone. I mean, there's so many other guys that deserve more credit. Uh, I won't speak for Peter, but uh, certainly more credit than I do. I mean, uh, Dr. Lipschultz out of Baylor University is kind of the godfather of this medicine, or one of many. I'm not sure if Morgenthaler is still has clinical practice going or not, but or Dr. Shippen. I know he's semi-retired, if not fully retired, but there's others out there using anabolic steroids smartly. And I say that instead of just mentioning oxandrolone, yeah, better known as Anavar since G.D. Searle started making it in 62. No longer made as Anavar, but we all know it as such, right? But it just makes so much sense 
for cases, particularly like uh, you said with women, where why not avoid the androgenic side effects if you can, right? Uh, and still, you know, have someone who, you, that you can treat for an inability to put on the muscle mass despite doing all the right stuff. They're eating right, training right, sleeping right, and yet, you know, they have issues uh, keeping weight on. It's a no-brainer. And you've also got other patients, uh, oftentimes with cachexia outright, because they're cancer patients that have been treated for uh, estrogen-sensitive cancers. And one thing that needs mentioning, I think, with, so everyone knows with oxandrolone is it will not convert to estrogen. And so if you have a female who, thinking of one right off the top of my head, 73 years old, who was treated for breast cancer, estrogen-sensitive, it's been five years, no recurrence, you know, the uh, oncologist finally signed off on it because there was some education that needed to be done. Uh, because if you give someone, uh, anyone, testosterone, the body can convert it to estrogen. And it's still contraindicated, you know, when someone has had estrogen-sensitive cancers. And we can go into a, a deeper a hole, and I won't do it, uh, but in, in essence, we haven't really caught on to the differences as much as we should within the estrogen family. And so we still just say, hey, no estrogen, period. Right. Well, oxandrolone solves the problem right then and there. You can keep the weight on them, put some weight back on, maybe even, you know, some life-saving weight and uh, avoid the estrogen. Again, it's a no-brainer. And, and without the side effects, like you mentioned, it's a dihydrotestosterone der derivative, which is the, the one that gets deservingly all the credit for the, uh, the acne, the hair in the wrong places, but it's a derivative. So, it, but it doesn't work the same way as dihydrotestosterone. So again, yeah, they call it the, the female hormone for that reason, but it works great for guys too. And the studies show it also helps with fat reduction as well as muscle gain. And of course, that's advantageous too, because in our society, obviously in any industrialized society, there's a lot of fat people. So you get this nice little side benefit of, of working off some of the fat as well. Right. You're mentioning oxandrolone. I got to throw in there. It's not just about this one. I mean, you know, uh, I have a lot of HIV patients in, in my practice. And things like nandrolone, used to go by the name of decadarablin, mm -hmm. are also not very energetic at all. But you need to put 20, 25 pounds of, of weight, preferably muscle, on uh, a male, maybe 15 on a female who has HIV. It is literally, literally a, a game changer, a lifesaver, literally a lifesaver, because to have that extra weight makes all the difference. So yeah, you can look at the, as a lot of people do, uh, the, the sort of, I don't want to call it the bad side because I don't want to be judgmental, but as a physician, not a bodybuilder or, you know, anybody in that field, it's not just about cosmetics. As a physician, we're helping someone live better, possibly even saving their life. These are things that are, they should be part of any medical practice as long as the physician knows what he or she's doing, obviously. Right. And I love that. I love the the thinking outside the box to truly, truly customize a plan for that individual, for that patient, and to make it so that you're not, I guess, contained by certain thought processes to not use this or not use that because it was deemed bad or it was deemed an anabolic steroid. Well, it is an anabolic steroid, but like you said, using it in the proper way not using it when you're 25 to step on stage and look your best, using it in a proper way to optimize your health. Well, speaking of age, if I might, and I think I put a little blurb in, in, in the book about this too, accidental, well, I think all falls are accidental unless you're a stuntman, right? But it falls. 
right. are a major cause of death in the elderly, particularly. I think it's ranked number four still, but arguably could be, you know, jacked up to three or even two. Mm -hmm. If you look at the fact that if a senior falls and doesn't die within three days of the hospital, but they die a month later from hospital acquired pneumonia, for example, or wasting and uh, who knows, there, there's so many things that can happen very quickly when you're older like that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't count as dying from the fall. It counts as dying from hospital acquired pneumonia. You follow me? So, yep. you know, Really, the accidental death, the fall caused the, the death, but it doesn't get treated that way. So I think it's a, ma a much bigger problem, is my point, than, than give it credit for. And again, it seems like a no-brainer. If you've got someone who's 80 years old, who's having difficulty getting around because they don't have the muscle and therefore something to activate for function, the strength that needed to even just walk to the bathroom back, well, again, this is, this is a no-brainer. Let's give them something to help them. It stimulates your appetite, gives you energy, puts that muscle back on the frame so they can get active again. And we all know that movement, actually movement is part of the definition of life. If you look it up, most definitions of what life means includes the word movement. Mm -hmm. Then it, it just, it, it radiates to all other aspects of their life. And again, I, I think this is something we're missing in medicine as a great tool, simple tool. And these things have been around forever. I mean, we don't need any more studies regarding these chemicals. Right. Better way to put it, obviously. I know. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It, it just is. I, yeah. So, kind of moving in that same realm of things that people probably haven't heard of, but that are readily used, kind of a, I, I want to call it a new kid on the block, but maybe it isn't. Rapamycin. I've heard about it from actually even my plastic surgeons. Like, are you using rapamycin? I'm like, no, I haven't gone down that rabbit hole of studying it yet. Cause he knows like I'll use growth hormone. I'll use Oxandra. I'll use peptides. I'll use anything they anti-age. And I really, I haven't dove into that yet. So I would love to pick your brain on it. We were talking a little bit off air. So let's give the folks kind of an overview. What is this rapamycin? How did it start? How did it come into the anti-aging world? Well, rapamycin actually has been around for a long time. And it's part of that family. People have heard of a Z-Pak, mm -hmm. azithromycin, but it's used not as an antibiotic, but it's used as, you know, the, the example commonly given is, you know, you get a kidney transplant and we use it for graft versus host disease to protect against it. It tamps down the immune system so your body doesn't reject the new kidneys. Now, that's used... Well, it is used in a much higher dose in those circumstances and used regularly, like daily. What we've done now is study rapamycin and, and the latest and greatest protocols use it once a week at a much lower dose in order to, and this is all theoretical at this point, but tamp down enough on the immune system for a moment, okay, but not so much as to reduce immunity and therefore, you know, get be much more likely to get sick from anything. Right. Uh, but active. Well, it's not activate, but it's 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 uh, also tamping down on something called mTOR. Yes. There's uh, an mTOR complex one and mTOR complex two, and I try and make. And I'm not going to do this here. I promise. I'll, I'll stop before I go into the weeds. But I try and do the best I can as a nerd, and with the help of uh, 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 a guy named Bruce who uh, does this for a living, helps translate nerd speak into stuff that makes sense to to normal people so that it's understandable because uh, I think it's important to know because as we were talking off air, we don't have the gold standard studies to say, oh yeah, this is a, this is a go for sure. We know it works for 
you know, kidney transplant rejection, but we don't know it works for anti-aging, but the theory sounds really, really good. And it seems to work in animals. And you've got guys out there who are leaders in the field. You mentioned Peter Atia. They're taking it. And, I, and he's a great one to mention, too, because he's what I call a red team captain. He's the guy that will poke a hole in anything. You know, he's yeah. not a blue team. And I'm not saying he's not an optimistic guy, but he's really good at, at finding holes in, in arguments. Uh, and, uh, and yet he's taking it, he admits. Mm-hmm. That's got to tell you something. We could all be wrong. But right. it sounds like a really good way of instituting something that we have in the system naturally. When you antagonize that mTOR complex one, uh, you set into motion things that the body uses to repair itself. And that's about as general as I can keep it, right, without getting into some of the details. People, though, I'm sure your audience has heard of autophagy, so it can signal that process Mm -hmm. Uh, which is necessary. It's not all about, you know, uh, I use the example of a cell that's, uh, it's a kitchen, right? It's, it's manufacturing different folded proteins and messengers to other cells, messenger RNA. Everyone knows about that now with COVID and the vaccines. But if that's all you did without stopping to clean up the mess in the kitchen from cooking, whether it's cleaning the pans or, you know, the, the tomato sauce, I I use the example that that drips onto the recipe book, you know, and now is that a three or an eight ounce, you know, helping or whatever, things get messed up. So the body has this great innate mechanism of cleaning up the kitchen so things can keep running smoothly. And when you're running too fast, not getting enough sleep, for example, not eating right, then this system doesn't work very well. And an mTORC1 antagonism activates uh, these genes called sirtuin genes too. They're all interconnected, I should say. Yep. And the bottom line is, it, 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 it's useful to understand that we need both. And this is the part that we find doesn't get enough attention. And this is one way to activate it. That that's, that's kind of nutshelling it without getting into the weeds. No, I, I, I don't mind the weeds, honestly, because sirtulin. So we know those are, I don't know, even know how to break that down. Even that that's what we focus on when we're looking at biological versus chronological age and telomeres and it's tie into anti-aging. So if we can activate that sirtuin pathway, we can essentially reverse our biological age, correct? Am I saying that right? Well, yeah. I mean, it looks like we can actually reverse it. We can certainly slow, stop, or even reverse that process of yeah, getting, now we have to get into how you define oh, aging. A little bit. Well, yeah. The process of going <laughs> the wrong direction. How's that, right? Where yeah, you're 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 creating stuff to use the kitchen analogy that's contaminated from yesterday's or the weeks before unclean pan, right? So you're going to not function properly, which is one very broad way of defining aging, right? If you don't activate these innate systems within the the body, so yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. You know, there's other things like exercise. You know, uh, and again, I don't want to go too far afield, but since we're talking about activating these systems. Mm-hmm. A lot of this occurs naturally in sleep if we get the proper amount of sleep, but some of this can be activated through exercise. One of the you know, people talk about NAD plus. The best way to activate, well, to, to increase NAD plus is to exercise. If you flash back to your high school physiology, you know that that transport from NADH to NAD, mm-hmm. bingo, you just did it when you uh, exercised. 
that can activate the, the sirtuin genes, that NAD is necessary anyway for the sirtuin genes to be activated. Fasting is another way to do that, we know now. Right. Uh, I don't know about you, but I am not into missing any meals, so I'll just up up the uh, increase the exercise output rather than missing meals. But yeah. there are all kinds of options to do this. And again, rapamycin is another way of um, helping the system help itself. Yeah. No, I love that. All, all these little tools that we are now finding, especially in the functional world, the biohacking world, the anti-aging world, I think are going to be those those secret weapons as we age to stave off disease, to live longer, better. And and it's all those little nuggets, just even, you know, kind of moving into peptides, all, all the different peptides that are out there. And now, now the the average person knows what a peptide is. Where you know, three, five years ago, they're like, what? What is that? You mean a collagen peptide? Like now we know that there are certain peptides that can be used for repair and recovery and post-surgery and growth hormone release and decreasing inflammation and brain protection. And, and we get into this whole new world of, of anti-aging tools. So I just find it fascinating. That's why I love, I like getting in the weeds a little bit, just a little bit. So well, peptides are one of my favorites because, and I devote an entire chapter in the book because, and you can devote more. There are so many things you can do with a peptide. I use the analogy of a tinker toy where, you know, you've got this hub in which you can introduce all these, these spokes that can connect to other hubs and create just about any structure you want. And depending upon the structure, it's going to affect the cell differently. And uh, the, I mean, people actually know about peptides. Mm. Uh, they just don't know it. Insulin has been around for a long time, artificially uh, produced insulin. That's a peptide. Right. Uh, but the peptides that are coming to the fore recently are much more, I don't want to say more useful than insulin because you, you know, insulin is essential, but broader in scope as to what we can do with them. Obviously, we have GH secretagogues, we call them, things that can tell your body to make more GH. Uh, you mentioned uh, all the other ones, like there's BPC-157, which we believe helps with ligaments and tendons, mm -hmm. can also help with the GI tract. That's really whose original purpose. There are things that can improve cognition, Sebrolysin or Simax, Solanc. There, there's there's so many options to choose from, and yet we're just scratching the surface. And right. that's where you can tie it in with you know AI, which is another part of the book, uh, because it is so important to realize that to get to those structures, like with a Tinker Toy example, the most efficient way is to use artificial intelligence to come up with the structures rather than you know hit or missing them in a lab somewhere going, well, what should we try today? Let's just throw we'll throw a spoke on this one. No, this will give you, you know, based upon feedback that goes beyond what any one human can do. This gives you ideas, hey, this is more likely to, for example, be another aid to have your body produce its own growth hormone. Mm -hmm. So let's try this one first. So, you know, it's very exciting to me, peptides, because of what we can do with them and how quickly we should be able to develop them in the next decade. Definitely. Yeah, no. And, and they're simple amino acid structures. Like you said, insulin has been around forever. So taking something so simple and, and building upon it and seeing how it's reacting in the body and the benefits that the body can, can obtain from it. It's just, I, I mean, I truly believe that we are going to see all of these things that you and I talked about today from hormones to those secret weapons to peptides. That's going to be 
the new forefront. Now, whether conventional medicine accepts that or not, I mean, we could go down the whole big pharma rabbit hole, oh my God. But but in, in our world, I think that that's going to be the new wave of treatment of medicine per se, because we can reverse disease with safe protocols. The horse is out of the barn. You, yeah. know, you can't put this stuff back. With the internet being what it is today, there's no keeping it a secret. There's no bearing the facts. And I'll knock on wood because maybe they'll find a way, whoever they is. The the pharmaceutical groups are either gonna, you know, pick it up or be left behind if that's you know a, a true consideration, which I think it is. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's in their best interest to start developing these things like they did longer acting forms of insulin, for example, and to start experimenting the way we do with, you know, the, properly the way we do with all drugs, which a peptide be can, could be considered one of, because otherwise they're, they're going to be left behind. This is part of the future of medicine. There's no doubt about it. You know, it'll just be a matter of how we get to these things, whether it's through an HMO, which is, I know it's a fine point, but it's a point nevertheless, because, you know, there's certain people that this is the only access they have. The only possible access they have is through an HMO, for example. And if the HMO is not dealing with it, well, then that person is not completely out of luck, but it's going to make it a lot harder for them to obtain it, not just financially, but for other reasons too. Just right. knowing about it, which again is part of the purpose of the book. So we can get this wave going where we we wash through, we override you know, some of the limitations that the current medical system provides, provides the wrong word. The current medical system hinders us in a lot of ways because of uh, the structure and, and the basis on which, you know, basically money drives it against capitalism. I'm just observing the way it works or doesn't work. So again, to your point, yeah, it's, it's, I, I believe it's here to stay. What we call it and how it folds into the system for all of us as Americans or worldwide remains to be seen. Right. Yep. I would agree. I would agree. It'll be an interesting Interesting journey to see how it does unfold. So, Rand, before I let you go, I, I do want to pick your brain. I want you to give the audience of all the different things that we've talked about, from the more complex to the simple, like you mentioned, with sleep and exercise. What would be those, like your top three tips to people who want to extend their longevity but age well? Do do the whole anti aging as you and I define it, not just living longer, but living longer, better. What would be your top three tips? Well, I hope this doesn't fall on deaf ears or come off as too anticlimactic, but it's, again, part of the reason I wrote the book because the three, if you want to give me three basic pillars for health span, healthy longevity, it's the basics. The same thing as great grandma told you, but what I try and do in the book is to explain the science behind it so you're not just going, okay, well, great grandma told me that. Right. What else you got? You know, give, give me the give me the peptides and et cetera. But the peptides and the et cetera are all fine tuning mechanisms for the three basics, arguably four, because human to human contact is very important as humans for most humans. But sleep, exercise, and nutrition are still the most important things. Yeah. A lot of misunderstanding amongst those things, those three things. Uh, with nutrition, there, you know, the epidemiological studies are very misleading. They're poorly done. I mean, you see it out there. You know, this study says broccoli is good for you. This study says broccoli is bad for you. Well, which is right? And people just throw up their hands and say, I don't know. 
and I understand for for some good reason there it, it, it you know it can send you down the wrong path and uh, I could see how it'd be very frustrating but the point should be made there you know one size does not fit all and you can start with some diet that you know doesn't have to be the latest fad but uh, you know has a structure to it and then decide okay how did that work for me and my goals tweak it or try something else because everybody's going to be different and what works for you could be a hundred percent different than what works for somebody else sleep there's been a lot of confusion around sleep you know in the 80s when i was going through uh you know practicing as a cpa we used to boast about how little sleep we got well i got up at uh you know at three this morning and started working i got all this done uh and i only slept four hours oh yeah well i slept three hours last <laughs> night that's what i do every week at now we realize, and all the, the the champion you know CEOs will will boast about how much sleep they do get. Seven to nine hours, we know, based upon some really good science, is essential. And again, it might be seven that hits the spot for you. I might need eight and a half, and and it might vary time of year, my age, what I'm doing, you know, that day, that week, the stress I'm under. But we know, unless you have a very rare gene mutation, seven to nine is where it goes with sleep. And then exercise. I mean, again, one size does not fit all. We know a lot about exercise and the different types. We definitely have an association between muscle mass, muscle strength, and VO2 max and health span. I mean, that's that's established. It's a mm -hmm. given. So you need to ad adapt your exercise program to you and trying to maximize those things. And uh, there's a very clear benefit between something as simple as just getting off the couch, you know, for 20 minutes, getting into that top half versus the bottom half of people can confer so much benefit. You don't have to be an elite athlete. You don't have to be in the top 5%. As a matter of fact, there are not only diminishing returns at some point, but, you know, the, the, the concept of hormesis comes into play here, arguably in, in many years, not most things. Too much can actually be a bad thing. If you're an ultra endurance athlete, you can overdo it and that can actually hurt you. Oh, yeah. But I try and present some of this stuff so that people realize it's not just about what your, your, your ancestors said. There are very good reasons to it that have nothing to do with folklore, legend, wives' tales, uh, because it really is the, the gross knob that has to be adjusted first before we start fine-tuning it with things like the peptides, rapamycin, we haven't mentioned metformin, but that's another one that seems to show some problems. Other drugs that can lower blood sugar and activate something called AMPK, which can further this natural process of, of cleaning up the mess so we can get up and do it again tomorrow much more effectively. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's exciting. I, I would say, for, and I hate to include you in this group, but for us nerds, I know yeah. nerd is not, a, not necessarily a compliment. Great. It's definitely but, a compliment. It's nice to have these things that we can glom onto and utilize if we're interested. But for people who say, look, I, I you know, rapamycin, I, you know, I'm not going to do that. That sounds too much. Well, there's hope because you don't have to go into the fine tuning. Start with the basics, which I know you and I have to emphasize every single day. But hopefully uh, a better understanding of the science behind it will get people more compliant with it. I love that you brought it back to the basics and everyone seriously needs to read your book, Cheating Death, because I, I'm glad you brought it back to the basics and said just what you just said, because you and I can also create monsters with our patients in that we do look at the et cetera's and we do think outside the box 
And sometimes we can get the ones that come back and go, I just need more of, give me more hormones, more thyroid, more peptides. It's like, wait a minute, are you sleeping? Are you exercising? Are you lifting heavy? Are you all stressed out? And are you eating like crap? And just what you said, those three basics, we have to come back to quite often with people and remind them that that's the core, that's the foundation. All this other stuff on top can be tweaked, but if you don't have the foundation, the house is crumbling. So well, I mean, you not necessarily part of this group, but you were part of the, the bodybuilding world. How many times have you seen a patient come to you with their jug of distilled water, their cooler full of their foods for the next uh, the rest of the day, and uh, they'll tell you that they're taking this, that, and the other for, for muscle uh, anabolism, and they go, Doc, you got to help me. I don't know why, but I'm stuck at this body composition. I can't put on any more muscle, and I can't lose fat. And then you go, well, hmm, you know, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm up all night, you know, packing for UPS. And then you go, well, you know, so how much sleep are you getting? Well, I sleep during the day when I get home, but, you know, I've got the, and I'm not making excuses and I'm not, you know, badgering anybody either, uh, but, you know, they've got 2.3 kids and a mortgage. So they yeah. actually have a second job and they have kids. So they say, yeah, but I, I get five hours when I get home after work. You know, that's a perfect example of all the fine tuning done to perfection for a lot of these people. I mean, you know, again, you've been in the world. A lot of these guys and gals are OCD about that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the basics, you go, yeah, well, no wonder you're not growing. No wonder you're getting fatter. You're not doing the, the, the you know, the sleep. Come on. Mm -hmm. You see it all the time, right? All the time. All the time. So I'm so happy you wrapped it up with that. That's perfect. That's perfect. It's perfect period at the end of the sentence. So Dr. Rand, thank you so much for joining me and for giving us all of your wisdom and fantastic conversation. We'll put the links in the show notes so people can grab your book. I think it's going to be a must read because just like you said, you 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 take the basics, you take the et cetera's and you break it down with science and the reasoning behind it. So I absolutely love it. Highly recommend it. And thank you for your time. No, thank you for the time. I hope that your, your audience enjoys the conversation we had and that, uh, they want more details, of course, that's why the book is there. But, you know, th this is part and parcel of what you and I are both trying to do, which is disseminate the information so that patients can, can make the best decisions for themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Doc.